Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The word of the Lord reads this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that I did not have to read all of that passage. Yet we thank you for your holy words. Please make the truth in this passage stick to our souls and work their way out in all the good and right ways in which they should. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ben, for reading that quite eloquently. Now, who knows whether or not he actually pronounced any of those names correctly. There's a song by Jordan, or... uh, Andrew Peterson, rather, wrong Peterson. Uh, Andrew Peterson, if you want to learn at least his ways of uh, uh, pronouncing it. Um, Let me give you, as we begin this morning, uh, kind of the nature of a sermon like today and beginning a book of the Bible is you really uh, are going to have two introductions this morning. Uh, so I'm just going to name them so you know what's going on. I'm, I'm going to give you a brief series introduction uh, that will serve for the next roughly 90-ish sermons, all right? We're slated to be in Matthew for um, just shy of two years, okay? So buckle up. Uh, we'll be here for a hot minute. And we'll give you a, a, just a broad series introduction that will be a really high fly, And then narrow in to a little more of an introduction today, although they will, uh, they're very related, as they should be. So, as thinking about Matthew at large and some of the things we hope to accomplish and hope to learn in the book of Matthew, I'll begin with this statement. Uh, If it's not obvious to you, there is much confusion on who Jesus is today. Certainly in the world, I mean, that could probably go without being stated, but in the world there is much confusion on who Christ is. We hear things all the time like, well, that's not very loving like Jesus, or that's not how Jesus would have acted, or Jesus was, we hear this very frequently, Jesus was kind, gentle, agreeable, peaceable. You know, Jesus came to bring peace. We particularly hear that around Christmas time, do we not? Never mind the passage that says explicitly the opposite, <laughs> that he came to bring not peace but a sword. Or that Jesus was love. He loved everybody equally, no matter what. 
but not just in the world. And, and honestly, knowing what, how the world views these things is important just so that we know what we're swimming against, you know, what, we're, what, we're, what is pushing in on the walls of the church. But it's also, and maybe arguably more important, to know, like, wh- where are we awry? Where is the church or the people that we would call Christian friends or even inside this, these walls? Where do we have misconceptions on who Christ is? I hesitate often to use examples from my own life for various reasons, but I think this one hits the nail on the head and will help set up where we're headed. Back around Christmas time, uh, if you follow me on the Facebook, as Pastor Greg calls it, I posted this statement. I said, I wonder how many super shallow and man-centered Christmas Eve services are about to happen around Dayton. Now, honestly, I thought that was a, a rather vanilla comment. Um, you know, vanilla, vanilla meaning plain and not very spicy. But uh, it got aroused out of a few people. I, I, I received a private message, not from anyone here, and pretty much no one of you would know this person anyways. But this, this person writes to me and says, I don't want to offend you. This is an excerpt. It says, however, I do want to challenge you to stay positive, show love, and speak and act in a way that shows his or Jesus' light and goodness. Above all, Jesus would love first. I'd love to see more of that reflected in your passionate posts that are surely well-intended, but listen here, but sometimes miss the mark and likely give off the wrong impression of Christianity at times. All right. So I'm left after reading this with this dilemma. Or at least what would have been a a dilemma had I not already thought about these things. Am I giving, here's the dilemma, am I giving the wrong impression of Christ and his Christianity? Is that truly what's happening? Is this person's assessment correct? Or quite possibly the other option is, does this person have the wrong impression of Christianity and Christ? One of us is wrong. One of us is right. Or at least more right. So the question is, so how would Jesus say or speak about such issues? How would Jesus say or speak about anything? And more broadly, because I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to make this, uh, and certainly the book of Matthew, and I don't even want to make today a sermon about rhetoric or speech or tone of voice. It's just an example of a broader issue, and that is how would you how would I paint the picture of who Jesus is? What would the colors on that canvas look like? What kind of strokes would you use? Bright colors? Dull colors? Would it be one of glory and magnificence? Or would it be one of poor and brokenness? How would you paint that picture? Was Jesus a pacifist, or did he fight? Did Jesus turn the other cheek? Did Jesus turn the other cheek every time? Did Jesus only take arrows, or did he ever shoot them? Did he let them fly? What tone of voice did Jesus use? Was he soft-spoken and reserved and timid? Or was he firm, loud, boisterous, declarative? When was he either of those? At what times did he choose one over the other? At what times did he let arrows fly? At what times did he not? Was Jesus always like a tender mom with her newborn? Or was Jesus ever unsettling, provocative, and maybe even quote-unquote mean to our modern sensibilities? I would ask the question, how would you paint that picture? What colors would go on to your canvas? Have you even considered those aspects of Christ? How would you paint the picture of Jesus? You see, the picture that you would paint reveals 
many things, but it certainly reveals the expectations you have of Jesus and the expectations you have of Jesus' followers, those around you and, of course, yourself. Here's what I want for you, among many things, as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, that I want you to have such a full picture of who Christ is that it sets you free to enjoy all that he is and to see all that he is in others and to reject rightly all that he isn't that you see both in yourself and in others. There is much of Christ that we just miss because we've let other things define for us who Christ is. We've let other people take a paintbrush to the canvas and show us just how to paint in who Christ is. And what happens then is we miss so much of who Christ is, and then unfortunately we tend to suppress the right things of Christ that then we see in other people because it doesn't fit our canvas. It's not the strokes we would use. Listen, Matthew is going to present Jesus in a way that might feel a bit like 30 grit sandpaper, particularly to the highly feminized and anti-authoritarian culture we live in today. So it's just a fair forewarning for you. Matthew's going to present Christ, as we will see today very quickly, as the king and his kingdom, not so much as a queen in her nursery, as beautiful as that is. Just realize, a king is not what we want. Like a king is not, authority and submission is not something we want as a culture. It's not something that the broad church culture wants. And it's likely something that you and I each struggle with to some measure in our own lives. The kingship and the lordship of Christ in even the most mundane moments of our lives, those moments oftentimes reveal just whether or not we want a king or not. And certainly this king is not the king that we deserve. But the king has come. The king will rule and he will establish and begin building his kingdom. From Matthew 1 to Matthew 28 and beyond, the kingdom is at hand. In Matthew 3, you can go look at this later, John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is what? He's the forerunner of Christ. He is, he is warning and, and proclaiming and announcing like a prophet the coming of Christ. And how does he do that? Repent, for Jesus has come. And just in case you missed this, in Matthew 4, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus himself is announcing that his kingdom has come. It's, it's at hand. It has come near. It's upon them. What was distant is now in their presence. We don't have to wait for some millennium in the future. The kingdom of heaven is here. The king and his kingdom has come upon us, beginning here in the Gospels. We will get to know the king, and we will get to know the ethics of the kingdom as we walk through the book of Matthew. And I would encourage you with this, if you would do your hard work studying Matthew and not waste these moments on other foolish pursuits, you will be able to paint a much better picture of Christ by the time we're done. Now, as for today and the genealogy here beginning in Matthew, one of the delights of preaching uh, section by section and verse by verse through the Bible is we get to read genealogies and, and some of us get to preach on them. Let me ask you this question. What rules you yet never consciously thought about? What rules you yet you never consciously think about? 
What is it that determines your uh, pleasedness, I just made up that word, or your contentment, or your joy, or your bitterness and dissatisfaction, yet you never actually think about it likely? What determines whether a person gets an A plus from you or a D minus? Whether you show them an emotional cross face or a smile of joy? What determines whether you give your all to a thing or whether you walk away hoarding the good that you have? What determines whether or not it was a good day or it was a bad day, yet you likely think about it not? What determines whether you have joy throughout your day or not? I think at the core of that, it's your expectations. Your expectations, what you expect of that person, what you expect of that circumstance, what you expect to be the outcome, what you expect. Expectations secretly move in and out, twisting their way around every thought and action like a constrictor, every emotion and its expression like a rudder on a ship. Your expectations tell you to be happy or sad, to be content or discontent, to be joyful with this person or to be bitter. Expectations are nearly a part of every human experience, and yet we give little to no time considering these two simple questions. One, what are my expectations? And two, are they the same as God's? Now, I know many people in this room would say they are building their life upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And for most of you, I believe it. However, many of us find ourselves discontent, unhappy, unjoyful, maybe even scared or fearful, because that foundation isn't meeting the expectations that you have for it. Imagine living in a kingdom with a divine king who always gets his way. Always, no matter what. And imagine having the wrong expectations of that king. What might life be like for you? And I think that's where most of us live frequently. Like my Facebook admirer, feeling called to call me to repentance for my post. They literally told me that later in their conversation, this was their calling to do so. Their expectation of Jesus is that he, quote, stay positive, show love, and speak and act in a way that shows light and goodness. What hits the mark of someone who is consistent with who Christ is is someone who is nice, and doesn't ruffle any feathers. That's the expectation. That was this person's expectation. That is this person's expectation. That the canvas would be painted only in light, fluffy colors that always appeal and appease and seem nice to everybody. As I, as I talked and walked, walked through this, and we had a great conversation, what, was, what struck me is that what defined being consistent with who Christ is was always speaking in a way that unbelievers would find appealing. Sadly, I think Jesus would have missed that expectation and that mark. Jesus would not have met the own expectation of this person and the way they thought Christ should be and his followers. You see, your expectations, my expectations, again, worm their way into everything. It would be wise and good for us to recognize and define, according to the scriptures, our expectations. See, this is where the book of Matthew starts. In part, 
That's why, at least the main reason, why Matthew starts with a genealogy. This genealogy begins to paint a picture of the expectations of Christ. Each person throughout history that's a part of this genealogy is giving just a glimpse or a foreshadow of who Christ is and what he's going to be like and what we should expect from him when he comes. Each of the people and their circumstances give us a glimpse. Each of them begin, again, to set the expectations. And then the rest of the gospel is going to do the same. Here is what we should expect from Christ and his followers. Or in other words, what will give off an appropriate impression of Christ in our Christianity. This will be the king and his kingdom. Beginning in verse 1, he says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What he literally means here is it's the, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the beginnings of Christ. Right here at the beginning, Matthew makes this big, bold statement, and we can't let the, the, this statement here, the verse 1, escape us or to miss it. We have to understand Matthew's context. Jesus had already come and died with this gospel having been written likely in the second half of the first century. Jesus had come, had gone, he's dead, he's resurrected, he's ascended, all that's already happened. Jesus had rocked the world in, in great ways and, and based on some people's expectations, not so great a ways. The Jews hated him and the pagans were not liking him very much either, right? So he didn't really have the world on his side. His claims to be God, particularly as it related to the Jews, were considered blasphemous and worthy of the cross ultimately. These were not the best of times for Christ, were not the best of times for the author Matthew. And what does Matthew begin his book with? He says, I basically, let me paraphrase for you, I'm going to write a paper on where Christ came from and prove that to you, that he is the son of God and the son of Abraham. So in the midst of the, the hatred of Christ for who he claimed to be, Matthew says, I'm just going to prove that to you. So understand, this is, a, this is a bold statement that is not going to be received well by the broad world around Matthew, but only by those who believed. And so here's our, really our, our two points for today. First of all, Matthew is telling us, this is, this is a, a summary of the two points, that you should expect a king and a blessing. You should expect a king and a blessing. Verse 1 is telling us you should expect a king and a blessing. More specifically, Jesus will be the king on David's throne who will rule forever and Jesus will be the king who, who, as Abraham's seed, will be a blessing to the entire world. And Matthew begins us right there. He's the king that will be on David's throne forever. And he will fulfill the promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the world. That's where Matthew begins, squarely there. That what you should expect is a king, not a president, a king, not a queen, a king, not a democratically elected representative, a king, not your grandpa, a king who is a blessing and not a selfish tyrant, a king who will give his life for yours and not require your life for his, a king who will do what's best for you and I, whether we like it or not. And not a king with one of those tolerance stickers slapped on his camel's rear end. He's a king that carries both a sword and a tissue. He's a king. He's come. 
He will be a blessing, and he'll be a king. Now, let me address something. It's going to feel like I'm sidestepping from my flow, but I have nowhere else better to put this thought, okay? So I'm just putting it right here. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you have Luke's genealogy and you have Matthew's genealogy. If you've read both of those, they're different. Again, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but they're different. Here's why I think that's the case. Luke, being the good doctor that he is, is concerned with an accurate biological representation of Jesus' lineage. Matthew is not concerned with a literal biological representation, but instead uses Jesus' lineage to make a theological point. Now, now I know this is going to drive some of you crazy, right? I know it's going to drive some of you crazy. Because some of you cannot think in terms of anything but literalness. So it bothers you when someone uses hyperbole or metaphors or extremes or euphemisms and so on. But you're just going to have to track along with this one and deal with it. I don't know how else better to tell you. It's like me in front of my children saying, you're driving me crazy. Anybody ever said that? I know, I'm a terrible parent, right? Sue, sue me. And my, and my younger kids are like, bring out the straight jacket for dad, right? I'm not literally being driven crazy, right? I'm making a point. I'm making a point that there's something wrong in this circumstance, Now, that's a rather simplistic example, but Matthew is doing something similar. He's using the genealogy of Christ to make a point about Christ, which leads me to my first point. The structure of Matthew's genealogy is the point. The structure. It makes the point. Now, I'm going to give a caveat here that, that I don't particularly like doing, um, but we're not going to fall, it's just, as we get into here, we're not going to fall into the numerology ditch, okay? I don't know if you know what numerology is. If you don't, good. I mean, some of us in our blood, like, ooh, Matt's going to talk about numbers, Woohoo! Most, if not all, of your modern-day numerologists are a bunch of crazy wackos, all right? Apparently, discovering important things hidden from the church for thousands of years, that's just foolishness. We're going to avoid that ditch. However, symbols and numbers are important in the Scriptures. So we don't want to avoid, we don't want to fall into that ditch either, where we just ignore things that are plain and and that God wants us to see. So for example, the number three, it's important. The number six, it's important. The number seven is important. The number 42, those are important numbers in the book of the Bible. They're just not intended for you to go through your King James Bible and find every sixth letter and then come up with some secret enigma code, you know, like the Nazis. Verse 17 helps us interpret and apply the genealogy. So verse 17, if you will, gives us the license for us to see and understand this and the numbers as important. Look at verse 17. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So Matthew just tells us all this genealogy that is missing things, that's missing characters, and he says 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. So what you need to see is that Matthew is pointing out to us that he's using three sets of 14. 
Again, now to the point of avoiding the ditch of numerology, the writer here tells us that these numbers are important. Matter of fact, he goes out of his way to make the numbers align, meaning he leaves out three characters after David, and he leaves out a character before David, and he counts David twice. I'll get you that in a second, okay? So he goes out of his way. You're like, hang on, Matthew. I thought you were a tax collector. Clearly like the IRS, you can't count either. (laughs) He's not intending to be like Luke, this literal uh, lineage, but instead using the generations to make a theological point. Again, we're not counting how many letters there are in the sentence of your English Bible or even the Greek or Hebrew. That's just silly. But Matthew here gives us three sets of 14, ultimately to describe really almost all of human history prior to Christ and including post-Christ. You see, in the first set of the 14 generations, you have Abraham to David. What's happening during this period? What's happening during these 14 generations? Well, God is making all sorts of promises. All sorts of promises. Largely and chiefly among those, you will have God's people in God's place under God's rule. That the people will even become their own sovereign nation during this time. These promises, rather. And that they will be a blessing to the world. That God's people will be a blessing to the world. That's the first 14 generations. The second 14 generations, you have God keeping his promises, him fulfilling those. Like, like think back with Joshua, right? God is fulfilling those promises as they walk into the land. They inherit the land. They become a great people. And the only thing that hasn't happened at this point is them becoming a blessing to the families of the earth. Even though that promise was made to Abraham, God fulfills many of the promises, but not that one. Then in the third set of 14 generations, what happens? God's people break the covenant. They lose the promises. Exile happens. That's why David, or that's why Matthew brings up the deportation. And David's line of rulership ends. So in summary, you have God making promises, you have God keeping promises, and in the third set, you have promises lost, or even more simply, promises made, promises kept, and promises lost. Those are the three sets of 14 generations. Now, why is he using 14 why is he using, for, now, now you're going to have to walk with me. I know some of you are not good at math, all right? Math is not your thing. But I checked this math problem with my kids, and they got it this morning, okay? 14 divided by 2 is what? 7. All right, good. We got that? Everyone following? Okay. How many sets of 7 do we have? 6. Hmm. Six ring a bell on anything anywhere in the Bible? How about seven? Seven's clearly an important number, right? We have examples of both. We'll give you two, I think, are the key and primary examples here. Six and seven are an important number in the book of Genesis, the beginnings of the earth as it is important in the beginnings of Christ. What do we have? Six days of work. What happens on the seventh day? God rests. What are we to do? Rest, remembering God and his work. Six days of creation, one day of rest. I think the other pertinent example is in Leviticus 25 with the year of Jubilee. So you've heard of that. Hopefully you know what I'm talking about. What happens in the year of Jubilee? Well, you have seven series of seven years. Seven series of seven years. Here's how it was supposed to work. They would have six years and into the seventh year of working. They would have six series of seven years, rather, 
working, trading, enslaving, acquisitions, buying up land and selling land and, and so on and so forth. Now specifically, on the 10th day of the 7th month of the 49th year. So this is getting to the end of the seven series of sevens, right? I know we're getting deep into numbers here, right? So just keep hanging. What was supposed to happen during that time? I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. They were to blow a trumpet that would inaugurate the 50th year as the year of Jubilee. What would happen during the year of Jubilee? What was so special about that in Leviticus 25? Well, all land was returned to their original owners. All debts were forgiven. Slaves set free. Land would lay fallow for an entire year. The people would rest for an entire year. You know this day, what it was also referred to as? The Day of Atonement. Now, do you see the gospel significance right here in the genealogy of Matthew? Two sets of seven, God making promises. Two sets of seven, God fulfilling most of those promises. Two sets of seven, man breaking the covenant and God punishing them. And in the last set of seven, we have the day of atonement. Jesus comes in the last of the seven generations, seven series. Debts are forgiven in Christ. The captives are set free in Christ. Identity restored in Christ. The blessing to the world is here, and rest has come. You see, Matthew is not concerned with being Ancestral.com and taking your DNA and selling it to China. He's concerned with building a theology for us. He wants us to know what to expect of Christ, who he is, and what his plan is, and the structural importance plays a role in the genealogy of Matthew. So with that, he references two things at the very beginning. These will be the last two points. The son of David and son of Abraham. Back to verse 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Point number two is that Jesus is the eternal king, the son of David. He's the eternal king. You need to expect that this guy from heaven who has come and died and went back to heaven, is nothing shy of the eternal king. So here's what happens. This, this is why I went through all that labor through the numbers thing, is that David doesn't just state this. He shows it literarily with the numbers. Notice who's at the center of the list. David is. Literarily, David's at the center. Now, interesting note, if you were to add up the letters of David's name in Hebrew, it equals 14. But what is David on the generations list? What number is he? What number? Go look at your Bible. Count it. Well, don't. It'll take you all too long. He's number 14. David is the 14th on the list. Now listen to this. Matthew goes out of his way to make him the 14th name on the list. He leaves a name off. Technically, David should be like number 15. If you count all the names including Jesus, what's it add up to? Again, don't count it now. Count it later. It's 41. But 41 is not divisible by 7 equally. Again, I know math. That's 14 plus 14 plus 13. Hang, hang on a second. So if you add up all the names, it's 14 plus 14 plus 13. That equals 41. But, but what does Matthew say in verse 17? 
14 generations from here to here, 14 generations from here to here, and 14 generations from here to here. What's that equal? That's 42. In verse 17, look, at, look with me. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And then what's he do? He counts David twice. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. You say, why does he do that? What you have to get in your head right now is just like when I say the phrase to my kids, you're driving me crazy. He's using this to make a point. Matthew is arranging the order and repeating David's name to make this point. That at the center of Israel's history is King David. That's his point. That at the center, that at the, at the climax, at the apex of Israel's history, remember, they're in the land. Success was theirs. They were following hard after God. I mean, go read the Psalms. I mean, at least the first part. There's lots of good things happening. God's promises being kept, and they're experiencing this uh, greatness of being God's people in God's place under his rule. This is the apex of Israel's history. Again, promises made, promises kept, then promises lost. But notice one thing. David was promised during this time that his throne would rule forever. 2 Samuel 7, 16. He, God says this, And your house and your kingdom shall be, sure, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Right? This is crucial. But what happened to David's throne? It was lost for a time. And here's Matthew's point. David was the closest thing God's people had to living permanently with God in his place under his rule. But it was lost. But just wait. Jesus is here. And Jesus climbed upon that throne and he will surely never lose it. It's final. It's finished. It's forever. His kingship on that throne will never be lost. So, so you, you back up here at the bigger picture for me. The height of Israel's history and its beauty and the fulfillment of all these promises. Lost. Jesus is the only one worthy to sit on that throne. Jesus is the only one that can endure forever. What you thought was amazing was only the beginning. What you thought was permanent, now it's permanent. What you thought nothing could ever take down or destroy like the Romans thought, Jesus is there now, and he sits on that throne. I remember, I remember Matthew is saying this post-ascension, post-death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. So in Matthew's mind, Jesus is literally in heaven sitting on a throne. Reigning and ruling. And he says, you thought David was awesome. The eternal king sits on the throne now. And for us, if that king is here, there is much for us to think about. Let me give you some brief application First of all, our expectations must include the kingship of Christ. If we're going to frame or begin to paint this picture, it must include Jesus as a king. 
We've lost that in our culture today. We want Jesus more as a consultant or Santa Claus. I mean, even for us Christians, where we frequently go to him only when things are awry, instead of taking every moment to him and saying, oh, sovereign one, what might you have for me today? Or I'm about to say these words, or I'm about to not say these words, or I'm about to do this action or not this action. Oh, sovereign king, what might you have for me? What might I say that would honor you? Now, we also have to be careful as we think about the kingship of Christ that we don't take King Charles III and impose his royal ridiculousness upon the kingship of Christ. That we don't take our modern ideas of kingship and throw that upon Christ either. Again, letting someone else put the brushstrokes to the canvas. We must define king from the scriptures. And so we shall at large through the book of Matthew. We learn things like he is utterly sovereign. We learn things that he is like he is not our pres not like our president. He's not a representative carrying out or supposed to carry out our wills. He doesn't say things that just match our fancy. His plans involve the kingdom and not just you and I. I mean, there's much we could say. Sometimes this king says things that intentionally make people mad. Sometimes he says things that intentionally draw people near. Later on in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, Jesus will even talk about how the Father conceals truth from some and not from others. Sometimes this king takes arrows and sometimes he throws spears. I would also remind you, lest we get too narrow here, that we define the king, define king rather, by looking at all of the scriptures and not just the Gospel of Matthew, though we'll focus in Matthew. When he acts, he acts as king, always. When he's with the woman at the well, he's King Jesus. When he's creating the world, he's King Jesus. When he is with Pilate before the cross, he is King Jesus. When he calms the storm, he's King Jesus. Our expectations must include the kingship of Christ. Next, our sins are sins against the crown. Our sins are sins against the crown. How much greater our sins might be perceived if we would consider them treason. It's one thing to sin against Grandpa. No offense to you, grandpas, for the record. It's another thing to sin against the throne, the high throne of heaven. I mean, when you sin against grandpa, you're technically sinning against both, for the record. If he's king, then it should change the way we approach him. Do you approach him as king or as your homeboy? <laughs> you ever saw those t-shirts, right? I'm dating myself here. Jesus is my homeboy, right? We all thought those were cool when I was in youth group. Shame on those youth pastors. <laughs> I mean, I, I was one of them. Shame on me. Do you prepare to approach him? I, you know, just... These are very surface practical applications. You know, George Mueller, famous um, beginner and runner of an orphanage, among many things, catalogs thousands and thousands and thousands of prayers that were answered that he never actually went out and asked for when it came to, like, supplying needs for the orphanage that he was running. Like, prayers answered after prayers answered that he never actually, like, solicited for other than soliciting God for those answered prayers. And he says it took him an hour to get ready to pray. Listen, I, I, I'm not presenting that as a standard for each one of us. You're like, wow, my devotional time just got a lot longer. Jeez. 
the, the point is, is this, do we just flippantly walk into God's presence? So we just flippantly turn to talk to God like we turn on the television? Or do we treat it with honor and respect, dignity? You could practice this by when you come to church, to worship. Do you ready yourself? Do you get good rest the night before? Or do you stay up on the computer or television? I mean, listen, when you do that, you're not just wasting your moments last night, likely. You're wasting your moments now. You spent the moments that were supposed to be spent now, you spent them last night. Do you get good rest? Another thing, like you, sh- you shouldn't wait to repent at communion. <laughs> you should do it Saturday night before you go to bed so that you wake up ready to come worship the Lord on Sundays. Do you dress like you're ready to walk before a king or dress like you're going to a movie theater? When you approach him. Again, again, the, the Bible doesn't say we, should, we all have to wear suits or we should all wear dresses or those kinds of things. But, but what the Bible does say is that he's our king. And when we approach a king, we show reverence to the king. We show thoughtfulness to the king. Mindfulness and honor and respect. Moving on. Our sins against the crown have been cleansed by the blood of the king. Our sins against the crown have been cleansed by the blood of the king. What king do we know of in history that says, or has said, you know what, I will die for you? I mean, I'm sure there are great kings with great valor who would give his lives and such for them, but, but not like Jesus. Not like Jesus. When you repent and trust in the blood of Jesus, do you trust that it was the royal king's blood that was spilt for you? That it was the king's blood that sealed your pardon? Who is it that could offer pardon? In a monarchy, the king. And this king sealed your pardon and mine with his own blood. It's not just the blood of some peasant, but the blood of the king. And not just any old king, but the king of the universe. My last point of application here do you live boldly for the kingdom like we have a king? I think many of us, if we live boldly for a kingdom, even let's say it's God's kingdom, we don't do it like there's a king of the kingdom, a sovereign, ruling, all-sufficient, all-knowing king. Again, remember, Matthew's point is not just that Jesus is king, but that he's on the throne forever. That's his point, that, that the rulership of Christ as king is forever. It's enduring. He's fulfilling the promise made in 2 Samuel that David's throne will reign forever. That's Matthew's point. That's why you gotta, that's why you gotta understand why does he repeat David's name twice and why does he work the numbers? If you don't do that, you're gonna miss the fact that he's saying Jesus fulfills the promise and will endure forever. 2 Samuel is true in Christ. There's that great scene in, in the Hobbit movie. I, I know some of you have not yet watched, but you should. When King Thorin, he's a hobbit. I'm sorry, he's not a hobbit, he's a dwarf. Sorry. <laughs> Stand corrected. Who said that? <laughs> King Thorin, a dwarf finally gets his act together, and I'm not going to go into all the details. He basically is hid up inside the mountain, and he's, he's selfish and greedy, and, and there's lots of bad things. So finally, that changes, and what appears to be a, an act of repentance and moving forward, he gathers his men and run out of the mountain. 
Now, you've got to understand the scene here. As they're running out of the mountain, uh, all the bad guys are storming the mountain, okay? I'm keeping this generic for half of you. They're storming the mountain, and it looks like it's going to be overtaken. That's where Thorin runs out with just a handful of dwarves at his side. And what do you hear at that moment? You hear the phrase, to the king, to the king. And then you hear Gandalf say, this is off to the side with, with, uh, with Bilbo, he says, they are rallying to their king. And this is the moment where the, where the battle changes. Well, what happens is now there's a king acting like a king and people acting like they have a king. So for us, the equation is a little bit different we have a king who always acts like a king. He's never going to be hit up in the mountain, greedy and selfish and afraid. So that part of the equation is always sure. The question is, are we going to run saying the phrase to the king? When you got to make that hard decision at work or when you got to get up and parent your child, when you got to have that hard conversation with your, with your spouse or with your with your kid or with your family member or with your neighbor or do you say to the king to the king I go to the king or when things are going well and life is grand and you look around like like yesterday seeing the snow come down right and all of the kind of the gloominess of of a farm put to bed and the mud and all that stuff <laughs> And it's just covered with white snow. Do you look at that and say to the king? To the king. He goes with us and before us to the king. All right, my last point for today is that Jesus is the blessing to the world, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the blessing to the world, the son of Abraham. All right, back to some math again. Although it's the same math, nothing new. 314s, promises made, promises kept, promises lost. Under the middle, or under the first category, promises made. You have God's people, God's place, under God's rule. And I've already alluded to this before uh, today, or in today's sermon. To Abraham, underneath promises made, you have this promise, Genesis 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless those, he's saying this to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will bless the families of the earth through you. So you have Abraham, God promises himself to Abraham that through Abraham and his seed, they will be a blessing to the world. Now, if you trace Israel's history, that never happened. If you trace, trace Israel's history up to Christ, it never happened. Even at the apex of Israel's history under the throne of David, it doesn't happen. Were there some people blessed outside of Israel? Well, well likely so. But not what's promised to Abraham, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was on its way, but what happened was once they got into the land, things started to decline rather quickly. Now what does he mean by a blessing to all the families of the earth? God's promise was not just those in Abraham's physic, physical lineage, namely ethnic Jews, would be blessed, but those outside of ethnic Israel would be blessed. Who is that? Gentiles. And to my knowledge, there are no ethnic Jews in this room, so that means us and beyond. Again, the covenant with Abraham, God's people, God's place under God's rule, 
and they would be a blessing to all the families of the world. Now, don't read that and mean every single person. That's, that's not what's intended here. But to those outside of Israel, you and I. Now, take that promise made to Abraham, so son of Abraham, and we go back to Genesis and see, all right, so he made that promise, but we didn't see that fulfilled in Israel's history. And he says that he's the seed of Abraham, which, by the way, is part of what got him crucified, right? Okay. Now tie that with something that Matthew does here in the genealogy. In the the genealogy, there are four tainted women in the genealogy. You have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Rahab, again, go back and reread these things. Rahab had some unsavory actions in her life, and she was a Canaanite. Tamar had some unsavory actions as well, and she too, a Canaanite. Ruth, probably the uh, least unsavory of them, still does questionable acts with Boaz in the threshing room floor. And she's a Moabite. Bathsheba commits adultery with David, and she's married to a Hittite. Why the ethnicities there? Because they all are either tied to or are indeed themselves not ethnic Israel. Matthew's two points here for us out of this. When Jesus comes, the Gentiles are blessed. The fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham in being a blessing to the families of the earth is fulfilled in Christ. That's why Matthew brings in these four women. That's why Matthew references Abraham. Because what is Matthew saying? Again, just like he's saying that Jesus will sit on the throne and rule forever as king, also the blessing to the families of the earth has come too. All of that in Christ himself. In Jesus, the line of Abraham will be a blessing to all families. You see this even continued in stories like the woman at the well. When Jesus goes to speak to her, this was uh, a no-no during his day, right? What's he doing? He's showing us that the gospel is open to the Gentiles. We don't have to wait till Paul to see that the gospel is for the Gentiles. Matthew shows us that the gospel is for the Gentiles here in the genealogy. With Matthew as a son of Abraham, or with Jesus as a son of Abraham. The second thing that we learn here that Matthew wants us to see from these four tainted women in the middle of Jesus' genealogy is that there is no sin that God cannot deal with. There is no sin that God cannot deal with. Yeah, how often do we like hold back from running in repentance as though we can hide it from God or as though God is not pleased to deal with our sin or as though God can't that's part of his point if if Jesus could come from and redeem I mean, part of the picture is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this line these generations what happens is Jesus and his redemption really reaches back into all the unsavoriness that we see. You see, Jesus comes in the seventh set of sixes in the genealogy. And what comes after day six? Well, day seven, duh. But what is day seven? The day of rest. Jesus has come. 
the blessing to the world has come. The day of rest has come. The work has been done. Jesus is here. He finished it. You and I can trust in his work. Salvation has come to the entire world for those who have faith and believe. So very quick application here for us. Rest in the Christ whose life has inaugurated the day of rest, the season of rest. Second, there is no sin in your life that the blood of Jesus cannot cover or cannot conquer. You too should rest on the day seven of every week and do so specifically to remember that the Lord came in the seventh block. The work is done. Amen? So as we end today, let me ask you this question. What are your expectations of Jesus? What are your expectations of Jesus? How would you paint that picture? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your word. Thank you for your commitment to your people to rescue us, to make us whole. I thank you that we have a king who sits upon a throne and has sat there forever, will do so forever, is sovereign over everything. And Father, thank you that Jesus has come as the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. For if you had not fulfilled that promise, then we would all be lost. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.